0: Episode 293 Game Theory Gone Wild. Copay cards, copay accumulators, and copay maximizers. Today, I speak with Dia Balazzi from Acela Health. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Let's cut to the chase here for our conversation about copay cards offered by pharma companies versus copay accumulators and copay maximizers deployed by health plans. This whole war of the copays started back in the day when PBMs began to shake down pharma for higher discounts. The prize that PBMs offered Pharma was lower co-pays for patients. It's a well-known fact that the higher the patient out-of-pocket, the lower the market share of the drug, the old supply and demand curve at work. So the PBMs and health plans kind of had an ace up their sleeve because they control how much the patient pays out-of-pocket. And so they used that ace to pull in higher discounts from Pharma. You'll make it up in volume, they told Pharma. We'll make sure you get lots of patients by putting your drug on a lower formulary tier and giving patients who take your drug the lowest possible copays. At a certain point, pharma companies started to get mad about their dwindling net prices, and they're pretty smart. So, pharma came up with a workaround to PBMs holding them hostage for lower net prices. Pharma decided to hand out copay discount cards. Then, they don't have to pay the PBM they can finesse lower patient copays all by themselves. Except now, the PBM sees this and they raise. (laughs) Enter copay accumulators and copay maximizers. For this part of the extravaganza of game theory at its finest, I'll let Dia Belazi, PharmD, MPH, explain. Dia is the president and CEO over at Acela Health. He's a pharmacist by training who has worked for pharma, then at a health plan, then spent lots of time in the PBM space. Now he's working to create a different kind of pharmacy benefit at Acela Health. He has seen this tangled web from pretty much every angle. One thing to point out here before we begin. In the olden days, this whole war of who has leverage over who transpired in the context of small molecule drugs in competitive markets. So like Lipitor versus Crestor versus Simvastatin and they all cost like 100 bucks a month. If the health plan made it untenable to get one of those drugs, they usually made another one in the same class financially attractive. So the patient had options, and the stakes were a lot lower. Now this same war is being fought on the specialty side of the house, where drugs cost thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a month, and the patient may have but one option— So, if it's made financially toxic for a patient to get that one drug, then the patient has to choose between, like, their family's health and dipping into their 401k. In these cases, pharma can be, sort of authentically, and the sort of there is an important qualifier, a hero who steps in and helps patients who are basically functionally uninsured because they can't afford the copays and deductibles to actually use the insurance they're paying handsome premiums to have. Pharma can step in and help via copay discount cards or through patient assistance programs, you know, to help those with lower incomes. But let me point out an obvious, but rarely mentioned in the same sentence connection. If the patient cost share is really high, there are at a minimum two parties responsible for that. The insurance company who set the patient cost share and may have created functionally uninsured members in the process, and the pharma company, who may have set the price of the drug untenably high, maybe way over what the value of the product was. Neither is an innocent bystander, and the patient, sadly, is caught in the middle of this war. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dia Belazi, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me. So the leadership of PBMs they all gather together in a room and they brainstorm a solution to undermine the copay cards, which undermine <laughs> their formulary tiers. What do they come up with?
1: So, so obviously the concept of copay accumulators is one of those things, or other other aspects that have come about, you know, to to try to dissuade uh, pharmacies from using copay assistance or copay cards for patients, right? So. The copay accumulators was one of those things that came about. I would say that it's it's probably the concept of copay accumulators wasn't just a probably a PBM thought, but it also came from their customers, whether it was health plans or employer groups. And, and the premise, if you think about, if I can take a second to describe sort of pre-accumulators, the world that would have looked like, you know, if somebody had a $100 copay and the copay assistance or the copay card program was willing to buy down that $100 copay down to 10. In other words, they would pay $90. The patient would be responsible for 10. The payer or the PBM typically wouldn't even know that happened. There's the data around getting this insight or information is very limited. The payer doesn't really see that.
0: Patient walks in with a crisp $10 bill of their own and a $90 copay card that goes in payment for the $100 copay. But at the end of the day, the PBM has, all the PBM knows is that $100 got paid.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Okay, then what happens?
1: In the copay accumulator model, the payer will not, so if we go back to this $100 example, that $90 at that copay assistance program from the manufacturer buy-down does not go against their deductible. So in other words, if that patient had a $4,000 deductible, only $10 would come off. So the patient would still owe $3,990 versus 3900 So they're not getting credit or the benefit of that copay as they probably would have before these concepts of the accumulators had come out.
0: And I guess this would matter because there's generally speaking an upper limit for how much the pharma company will pay for any given patient. So it's like, you know, we'll pay up to $90 per script for a total of $2,000 or $1,000, right? So like you can max out the amount that a pharma company is going to put against any given patient in any given year.
1: That is generally correct. The majority of them do have some type of budgetary allotment for the patient to to utilize.
0: Uh-huh. I'm seeing where this road is leading in the sense that if the amount is not getting counted toward the deductible, so a more stark example might be like a multiple sclerosis product, for example, okay, exactly. which the... Copay isn't a hundred dollars, it might be, you know, just for the sake of this example, like say a thousand dollars, right? Because it's some kind of co insurance tier.
1: Yes. Yes. That's
0: if, right. If the max pharma benefit is say three thousand dollars and the pharma company is contributing, I don't know, like nine hundred dollars toward mm-hmm. the the copay, then in three months the patient's gonna blow through their pharma benefit, but they still haven't satisfied their deductible.
1: That's exactly right. All the patient has done in this case, when there's an accumulator is pushed out in a time perspective, they their time to pay that. Instead so of paying that perhaps earlier in the year, they're now to your to your example, maybe start paying their their deductible out in April, May, May timeframe.
0: Yeah. So if I'm a patient and now I'm now it's the middle of March, I no longer have a pharma benefit. You know what I mean? Like I can't yep. use the copay card anymore because I've Correct. maxed it out and my out of pocket that I owe is still a thousand dollars. So now all of a sudden That's you've good. got a patient who's, who goes to the pharmacy and they're told, oh, you got to pay a grand for your drug. And they're like, well, wait, 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 it's only supposed to cost a hundred because I have this copay card, right?
1: Those are the real, situ- the real scenarios or situations that do come up. The patient will then have to pay their their out of pocket or their deductible if they're in a deductible type of benefit design uh, until they get past that. And once they get past that, if there's typically a copay or some lesser dollar amount that typically will kick in. But you're absolutely right. At that point, they don't get credit for the dollars that were the dollars that were utilized by the copay assistance program.
0: What's the typical deductible that some of these patients like have you seen any examples of a patient with acquiring a specialty drug?
1: If you think about more of a real scenario, you know, if I take your multiple sclerosis example, MS products typically today are easily 60, 70, sometimes $80,000 a year in terms of the product cost. The patient might have some form of coinsurance because it's a specialty product to your point. I have seen coinsurances range from 10 to 20% pretty typically. They may be in a five, $6,000 deductible phase, but the copay assistance programs are typically a bit more rich. They might allow a couple of grand per month or maybe up to 20,000 or $24,000 a year. So you can kind of see how this could potentially play out, right? They, the patient could be getting the value of the copay and the manufacturer uh, sponsored copay assistance. It might work out okay for the first three months that they meet their deductible phase. Now, if there's an accumulator, it won't they've got to still pay that $6,000 uh, deductible at some point in time. But again, if it's a, you know, this is all about timing. I mean, it's literally a math problem based on do I spend it now? Do I spend it later? And that all depends on how that copay assistance program is going gonna, is gonna to try to come up with the with the dollars to, to do that. But to your point, it's typically you don't really run out of the, the copay assistance benefit in the first three months. It typically will get the patient through maybe middle of the year, maybe into the third quarter. And then you know, if a payer has that accumulator in place, then that $6,000 bill starts to come right in. For a multiple sclerosis product that typically costs $7,000 a month, that's pretty much a whole month's prescription is being pushed over to the patient to pay for in that particular time, which could be a a, a significant financial challenge for almost anyone. Yeah.
0: In fact, I was listening to patient who had a kid with cystic fibrosis. And her point was suddenly their prescription expenses went up $8,000 a year. And Mm -hmm. she had to dig into her 401k to get eight grand to pay for her child's obviously you can't go without your cystic fibrosis medication, you know? So she had to dig into her, their retirement fund to fund the eight grand, which they never had to pay for before. And, you know, her point was like, I just basically got my salary decreased by $8,000, you know, like effectively, like that's how she was taking it, that her employer just... You know, might as well have given her a demotion of eight grand. Right. Sure. Meanwhile, from the employer's point of view, if I'm thinking about this as an employer, I mean, obviously, employers and PBMs are doing this for a reason. So we kind of touched on, we implied a reason before.
1: In my opinion, this is a very philosophical slash potentially contractual obligation that employers or payers see that the patients have to have to meet right and and the the the, the, philo- the philosophical part of this is is this something that the patient specific it has to come out of the patient's credit card or bank account or is at the end of the day, is this about pushing cost off? So if you think about before the concepts of accumulators, the ideas of deductibles and copays, this was just a way of pushing the dollars either to the patient or to somebody else to pay for. Now we're getting into conversations of, no, no, I want the patient to pay. Not somebody else, right? And we're seeing some very interesting variations of copious assistance programs now that are happening, and to, to try to hit on this philosophical point.
0: Is this just like a skin in the game argument? Like, oh, the patient needs skin in the game, so I think that's part of it.
1: I think that's part of it. I think it's it's some folks who are, you know, it's almost like the nuclear arms race, right? You've got two sides of the fence here, and folks are just trying to combat each other you know in terms of how this actually gets to play out and unfortunately the patients kind of stuck in the middle in some in, in many instances but but again you read the language of these benefit design and some of the the plan documents that these payers and employers produce it doesn't really say to the T that the it has to come out of the patient's bank account. It's just, you know, this is patient's liability, which means, you know, the providers, i.e. pharmacy, should pay for that, or should uh, ask for the phar- ask for the patient to pay for that. If somebody else, your, your grandparents decide to write you a check, or your mom, or a wealthy person standing behind you at the counter that sees you're having a problem, does that really matter? You know, the, and these are, again, kind of a philosophical kind of conversation, but again, the payers that have jumped onto the accumulator model, feel strongly that it should come from the patient and not anyone else.
0: A lot of times the skin in the game philosophers yeah they want patients to feel the financial burden of decisions that are being made relative to, you know, health spending so that Mm -hmm. they can be consumers. It's hard to be a consumer if somebody else is paying for everything because everything's free, you act like everything is free. Is the thinking there that these patients are gonna sit there and do a pro and con decision-making matrix relative to whether or not the kid really needs this med? I think the answer,
1: it started that way. I think if you think about the financial mathematical model of this, and again, if we just use simple math, what we're seeing now happen is that you've now taken, and again, let's say a patient has a $6,000 or $8,000 deductible, whatever that dollar amount, you have basically got pharma to pay for that. When you first, at the, at the beginning, your initial, you, the way you've created the premium for that family or for that patient is basically saying, you know, $6,000, they've got to pay for, pay for it first. Right. But what now what's happened is you've got pharma to pay that. And then what you're doing as a payer is you're now coming in saying, I still want the six thousand from the patient. So in essence, you've now pushed twelve thousand dollars, for example, of cost when you really modeled this to pay to push down to six thousand dollars of cost. So now it's become a, you know, I think it's somewhat of evolved to being a to your point. Let's get the patients feeling this being a consumer, making consumer based decisions to How do I push further push costs on a pharmaceutical budget that's so out of control, especially in the specialty arena, you know, as soon as a product gets designated as specialty, you know it's going to be six figures, now seven figures in terms of cost, right? So so there's that aspect that I think it's now fortunately started to, this is another mechanism for payers to push down additional costs to both the patient and now the pharma company.
0: So it started out as a rebuttal to pharma's rebuttal. (laughs) Right. You know, so the PBMs obviously have a vested interest to get as met to get rebates, you know, and, and to put things in tiers so they can drive volume, et cetera, to, to products, which they're financially incented to drive volume toward, you know, then the copay cards come out, which diminishes their leverage effectively. So you know, the copay accumulators were sort of in a reaction, reactionary to that, but then the prices of the pharmaceutical drugs started to go up and up and up. You start to have employers who just are freaking out because budgets yes. are, it can kill a budget if somebody gets hemophilia. So employers are, start asking, you know, I can't pay for this anymore. So then the strategy kind of takes on another core imperative, if you will, which is legitimately to reduce employer costs. Correct. That's exactly right. And the patient's stuck in the middle. Yes. Yeah, I sat through a presentation recently about copay accumulators, and this is in no way, shape or form any attenuation of the point that the patients get stuck in the middle. But I have to say that the presentation itself was fairly unsavory. (laughs) It was actually sponsored by pharma, and there was this elephant in the room that no one seemed to be addressing which is the fact that the pharma drug costs were really, really high. So it's like, well, you know, another way to lower patient costs is to lower the gross net cost of the pharmaceutical product. And that just really didn't seem to be discussed at all. How would sure. you factor in just the increasingly high cost of these specialty meds? Like, how does that factor into the conversation that we're having right now?
1: Specialty now is the hot topic. It's the, the biggest challenge. I mean, you made a reference to hemophilia. We're now looking at gene therapies and hemophilia that could be in the millions of dollars that are about to be launched in the next call within the next six months. No one, we don't have it, no one has an answer for this. There's no, there's literally, you know we all we are doing is pushing these decisions or significant conversations of how do we actually handle this as a as a country, as a society, as an industry to figure out how to manage this where we're not, you know it doesn't become fifty percent of our GDP, et cetera, et cetera. we're We're going down this path. this train is going very fast, and all we're trying to do is throw little pebbles and the tracks to try to slow the track slow the train down this whole industry is based on a capitalistic model where you have some checks and balances you've got pharma innovating coming out with newer hopefully better products to be used in these specialized specialty conditions and payers are trying to figure out how do we not go bankrupt and how do we make this a, a attainable uh, for, for the employers and the health plans and the government in many cases so that the system doesn't break.
0: One thing I want to just kind of backtrack on here is that there's different types of situations. And you alluded to this earlier. There's definitely the situation where there's one specialty product. And if you don't take that one product It's like a Boolean, you know, like either you take the one product or there's nothing else. And then there's situations where there are plenty of other either branded products or generics so that there's options for the patient. And while at the same time being more cost effective,
1: there's that if we're talking about the generic context. But but there are also we now have multiple options to treat multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, even cancer. Right. And they're they're starting to become significant variations or one agent costs more than the other. And the data doesn't really suggest that that one that costs a lot more is better. Right. So there's almost that brand to brand comparison that could be. And I think that's this whole idea notion of specialty formularies and how do I drive usage for one drug that perhaps either whether it has a higher rebate or just has a lower net price versus another one that that does not.
0: Do you feel like ultimately so just taking a step back there is every incentive and if you want to hear more about this listen to there's a show with Vinay Patel talking about the incentives just in kind of inherent systemic incentives for pharma to actually raise prices it's kind of weird do these accumulators provide a counterforce to that like this is actually a legit impetus for pharma to not raise prices or to actually be competitive
1: So so I think being competitive and not raising prices are probably two different variables, two different things.
0: I think as it relates
1: to not raising prices, I think the answer is no. In terms of competitiveness, I don't think accumulators are really forcing pharma to be more competitive. I think where we really see the biggest strides in competition is a couple of reasons. One, there's multiple pharma programs or products in that particular disease state that have now disease alternatives or or therapeutic alternatives, and we're starting to see more of that competition. So in other words, if I have three uh, biologic products to treat or three specialty products to treat rheumatoid arthritis, it's a lot better. I can finagle a better rebate or price than when there's only one, and that's the only game in town, right? And I think there's that's a, that's a pretty significant driver. And less about the accumulators. I think what the accumulators have done, really, as I mentioned before, is they've kind of payers have figured out to use them to push some of these additional costs to kind of create some breathing room, knowing that the next million-dollar hemophilia product is around the corner, and they've they can move dollars around when it when it comes to trying to break even or trying to trying to meet their meet their budgets.
0: So if I'm an employer, is that the best I can do, which is basically save money by making my employees pay for it? So that's one. I think that's one aspect.
1: I think if you look at well, what are all the tools, you know, the concept of formulary, which then hits to rebates, that's another tool. Do we want to put more clinical requirements to make sure if we're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to treat a specialized condition, do we want to make sure that's the right patient? So these clinical programs, these, these pre-authorization models that are out there to really make sure, you know if we're going to spend it, we want to make sure we're not, we're not creating a scenario where we're throwing money down the you-know-what. There are other things. A lot of other items, you know this you mentioned buying bill a moment ago of, of a program you've done recently. You know, there are things of moving sites of care. You know, we, there's this whole model, especially now with the pandemic and with COVID, home-based healthcare is, is now bigger than it ever was. You know, being able to, do I need to send and pay a hospital to infuse a specialty medication where that might be doable to send a nurse to someone's house at half the price, right? So there are other techniques, other applications or tools that can further alleviate, you know, the, this pricing. But I think it's, it's not a one, it's not a simple answer. It's combinations of these things to really effectively create a program that's tailored for the specific types of patients in that employer
0: population. Let's add a wrinkle here, copay maximizers. How are they different than accumulators? I think I I get the feeling that maximizers are kind of like the son of an accumulator.
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe more like a a half brother perhaps, but um, (laughs) let me maybe define it and then we can get into the weeds of it. You know, If you think of the accumulator being not providing credit for the patient, the maximizer is doing something almost in essence, just, just completely different, which is if I know there's a copay assistance for a particular product, maybe I even know how much money a program even has. Why don't I tailor a benefit design that's going to push or utilize and press upon the specialty pharmacies to enroll those patients so that pharma pays through those copay assistance programs more of that cost. That's this is so You're basically maximizing those copay assistance programs. And you could penalize the patient much like an accumulator, whether you, you don't give them credit for that or you, you do. I didn't quite get
0: that. So what exactly yeah. is a maximizer? So the accumulator, what that does is it removes the pharma's ability to contribute to a deductible. How does the maximizer differ from that?
1: If I can give you an example, if we use that same multiple sclerosis example, I'm just going to use some round math here. Let's say it's a $100,000 a year product. And we know that copay assistance program. Has $24,000 of value that can be utilized to buy down the patient's uh, copayment, right? So, what the idea would be is, well, why don't I create a benefit design? In other words, a copay, a, a co-pay that's $2,000 a month, for example, right? So that it equates to $24,000. Perhaps the year before, that patient might have had a Hundred dollar copay with a six thousand dollar deductible. I'm kind of putting that away, and I'm saying I am now going to charge you consistently as a copay of two thousand dollars a month, knowing that pharma is going to come in to pay that two thousand.
0: Uh huh. So basically, I'm making my out of pocket match the pharma program
1: deliberately. Correct. Correct. Or try to yes. Or trying to yes. That's that's the idea of the maximizer.
0: Interesting. This is almost like. Again, we were talking about game theory earlier. This is kind of like, I'll see your okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, employers and, and, and PBMs who are who are leveraging the maximizer strategy, they're basically doing market research. They're going around, figuring out what all the max benefits are. You know, somebody made some giant spreadsheet, wrote down what all the pharma companies are paying, and then decided that they want legit the patient to pay a hundred dollars a month or something like that. So now they're making the monthly out of pocket like so that they're controlling and making sure that the patient isn't hit with like the previous example, like all of a sudden $8,000 out of unexpected out-of-pocket costs you know, they're making sure that it's fair, but at the same time, they're recognizing the pharma contribution.
1: That's right. And there's variations of this, but that is exactly a general mindset or, or definition of what a maximizer is.
0: Is there any, you know, what's the downside there?
1: What is this? So, so uh, whose perception or who's, per, you know,
0: who doesn't in, in like it? Shoes, there's always yeah, somebody doesn't that doesn't like it. Like right? it. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think the pharma doesn't like it either. I think pharma, you know, has a distaste for both the accumulators and the maximizer, right? They were never intended to be utilized this way. They were intended to buy down the Financial liability, whether it's a deductible, co insurance, copay, right? And and you've now got payers utilizing this. And there's lots of variations of this. I have seen very bizarre
0: ones to very give examples of a bizarre one. I just I can't wait.
1: <laughs> I have seen where, you know, again kinda of using that cystic fibrosis because it's such an expensive product. These are three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year in some cases, where the payer might put out a twenty five thousand dollar copay or coinsurance, right, that, and they basically, the, the pharma company will pay it, and they've just maximized that entire copay assistance that would have been for the patient in one month, in one script, right, so there's that kind of what I think is a very disastrous and and perhaps um, inappropriate way of of applying a copay maximization model, right? They're just sucking it dry all in one all in one shot, or 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 in two months, or what have you, versus kind
0: of what. And then the patient still winds up losing because now in February they rent, they have no subsidy,
1: right? They don't have a subsidy, and even if their copay goes to something reasonable, you know, like even a grand, it's still it's still a challenge, right? So there's yep, there's absolutely that. But, but again, I mean, I think there's there's a vary, there's variations of approaches here that, that we, I have seen folks attempt at. And, and I would say maximizers are a bit new, except for a couple of payers out there that have been probably doing this for five, six years. Many folks have maybe kind of jumped onto this in the last year versus accumulators have been have been kind of worked through over the last three, four, five, maybe even a little longer in terms of number of years the payers have kind of tweaked and you're even seeing some legislation in certain states that say you can't do accumulators you know they're trying to push back on a, on a policy perspective but but again the maximizer model is a bit newer a bit newer and and still trying to figure its way in in sort of mainstream pharmacy benefit services
0: you know another program that always seems to come up in these conversations which isn't really related but it's adjacent enough that it always seems to come up, is the patient assistance programs. Right. Wherein a pharma company donates, you know, charitably donates a chunk of change to yep. a patient group, a patient advocacy group, and that patient advocacy group then helps patients pay their out-of-pockets.
1: That's a, a bit of a different model in the sense that there's a, typically a significant qualification that the patients have to meet, such as they don't meet poverty-level limits to qualify for Medicaid, for example, but they're obviously not able to pay for their medications. You're kind of in that, in that little void or gap there. That's That's pretty wide. In terms of number of people in the U.S., and then to your point, they would get qualified in these patient assistance programs that are typically foundations, charitable organizations that are providing those dollars. Many of those dollars come from pharmaceutical companies' sponsorship, et cetera, to to help pay for for those products, right? To help assist those patients.
0: I think one of the things that probably warrants mention with this whole in this whole conversation is that we're talking about let's just say it's it's patient. And coinsurance, and the patient's responsible for 10 or 20 percent of the cost of the med. That means the employer is responsible for 80 percent. It is financially, let's just say, advantageous for somebody, somebody, meaning the pharma company, somebody, to pay the patient's portion so that the patient can get the med because there's still. 80% 80% of the cost of the med on the table. Right. And that's right. That 80% is being borne by these employers. So, like in the cases that we're talking about here, where there's no therapeutically equivalent alternative, you have this poor employer. I feel for employers who are, I feel, being put to a certain extent in a, in a situation that is almost as untenable in certain cases as the one that the patient's getting put in.
1: Yes. 100 percent right. This is their biggest challenge. How do I keep healthcare affordable for themselves? Offer reasonable premiums to their employees, and sustain a business? It's it's definitely a challenge. They are they are struggling. I have seen multiple times, or especially these gene therapies that come out, and, and thank God these employers have reinsurance and stop loss. But even that causes them to their costs to go up in that perspective to pay for these expensive outlier cases that are millions of dollars where they don't even spend that much of their entire prescription benefit. You know, and they've got a two million dollar bill that just came about. So it's it's a it's it's extremely challenging. These are the issues that employers are trying to figure out. There's no clear answer to this.
0: I was just actually reading a randomly a Milliman report which suggested that thought loss very frequently doesn't even cover the gene therapies. Like they're excluded. Anyway, yep. so, you know, it's also a question mark, even if you have stop loss that you're paying handsomely for, whether or not it's going to cover some of this this stuff. That's right. So Dia, do you want to talk a little bit about Acela Health and your work there?
1: Yes. I'd uh, love to. Acela Health is a specialty pharmacy cost containment benefit management company. We uh, help employers and plans and third party administrators manage lots of what we've talked about today around specialty pharmacy and the costs. and, and the clinical aspects and how do we improve patients' health and do it in a sustainable model.
0: So if someone is interested in learning more about Acela Health, where can they go for info? Acelahealth.com. Dia Balazi, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentless Value.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you. So you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.